we have to make it as easy as possible for people to change behavior. So easy, in fact, that there will be no attitude change required. So easy that people can eat vegan for whatever reason without even knowing why they're doing it, without even caring about the animals. Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saver. Hello, hello. My name is Jerry Saver and this is episode 32 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show, the podcast for business ideas and inspiration when you want to learn more about starting or running a successful plant-based brand. Now, if you're a regular listener of the show, you know that we've just started a countdown to the first online vegan business summit that will be happening in September. And right now, you still have a chance to submit your questions for the speakers at this event. If you go to veganbusinesssummit.com, there's a survey button right in the middle of the page that will allow you to send in everything that you'd like to hear discussed at the summit and everything that would help you with your own business plans because this free event will be bringing together experts from all across the plant-based industry. Food, fashion, technology, branding, marketing, personality brands and coaching, and plant-based startups and investments. So if you want to know more about any of these topics, or if you're running a business or planning to run a business in any of these areas, don't miss this chance to submit your questions because the survey will be going down once we open registration. And now, we're going to move into today's interview. I'm talking to Tobias Lehner today, and he's a well-known speaker and activist who blogs about pragmatic methods of spreading the vegan message under the name of Vegan Strategies. Now, how does that relate to vegan business, you might ask? Well, for one, I personally believe that vegan business is all about pragmatism, because in order to be successful, you have to keep the end results and the bottom line in mind, and just to be clear, we are not talking about just the financial bottom line here. And second, I believe that vegan business can and should be considered a form of activism. So I'm very happy for this opportunity to dive deeper into this topic. Tobias, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. And um, let's let's kick this off by um, getting a better feel of who you are. So who's Tobias Leonard in, in a nutshell? What defines you? Yeah, so I'm, um, I've been a vegan for about 20 years and an animal activist for about as long. And I started with, um, after my graduation, internships in the U.S. I founded an organization in Belgium that was like a vegan organization, educational organization. Fifteen years later, I had a burnout. Uh, the organization still exists, but I left um, and I started uh, the blog veganstrategist.org. And I'm also uh, doing other things. I'm uh, together with Melanie Joy. I am uh, giving trainings under the flag of the Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy. So that means that we're uh, going all over the world to give uh, trainings to groups of animal advocates in order to try to help them become more efficient in their activism and advocacy. And then thirdly, I'm also involved as a co-founder with a new international vegan organization called ProVeg, which operates from Germany and is now internationalizing. That's it, kind of in a nutshell. And you've been vegan for 20 years, which is pretty respectable. But what I find interesting is that on your website, you say that you were telling yourself that you should be vegan for like 10 years before you actually went vegan. So... I want to know how that process went for you, because obviously you 
really dove into it and you gave a lot of thought to, to all the reasons behind it. So how was that? Yeah, so I, I remember being, I don't know, 12 years old and seeing our dog and seeing uh, a cow across the street. And then I was wondering, what is the difference for me that uh, justifies that I pet the one creature and eat the other? And I couldn't find any difference, any morally relevant difference for myself. So I said, like, okay, I cannot justify this. I have to stop eating animals. That was like a clear conclusion to me, but um, it was harder to put into into practice. Indeed, I needed uh, about 10 years to actually become a vegetarian, then later a vegan, mainly because I liked the taste of meat so much, mainly because it was difficult to change my habits. Even though I have uh, eaten much more animals than I should have, I'm grateful in a way because that uh, allows me to understand that it's not easy for everybody. And that for, for many people, it is still a matter of like, um, yeah, putting things into practice, putting your ideas into practice and not being able to like, just because you realize something is wrong, not being able to following up on that. Just like so many people cannot follow up on eating healthier or stopping smoking or, or all these things. So it gives me some kind of like insight, patience, compassion, um, empathy to deal with people who are slower in terms of their changing. Yeah, I think that's a very important issue that you just brought up that's there's a gap between knowing and, and doing. And I, I guess depending on, on the issue and depending on the person, that gap can be small enough to, to bridge on your own in a very short period of time. Or sometimes it can be a gap of 10 years as it was for you. So what are the implications for, for talking to people about veganism who the rational level, they, they get it, but they're just not able to take that last step. What does that mean for, for talking to these people? Yeah, so like you say, there is um, a discrepancy or what we call it the, the attitude behavior gap. So you can have a certain attitude. You can say like eating animals is wrong or I love animals, I care for animals. That's your attitude. But your behavior is not following and there's a gap between the two. So that means that it's not enough to raise awareness. It's not enough to tell people that eating animals is wrong or that they can feel or that they're sentient or whatever. What we need to do is to do things so that people can be brought to actually change their behavior because that is the only thing that will help animals. If we have a world of people caring about animals but not doing anything about it, then um, we haven't won for the animals. So in my view, um, the way I phrase it is that we have to make compassion easier. We have to make it easier to be compassionate. Being compassionate today is not easy in the sense that if you allow yourself to be compassionate, if you allow yourself to understand the full ramifications of being compassionate, you have to change a lot of stuff. You have to change your behavior in a lot of ways. What I think is that we have to make it as easy as possible for people to change behavior. So easy, in fact, that there will be no attitude change required. So easy that people can eat vegan for whatever reason without even knowing why they're doing it, without even caring about the animals. And that's not a situation we have today yet. Today you have, still have to go out of your way to eat vegan. And um, uh, of course we have some good situations in New York and Berlin and San Francisco, etc., where it's not too difficult anymore uh, once you do it. But um, in the beginning, it still is very much going against the stream. And I think we have to just make sure that the required effort to go vegan and to put your 
attitude into practice becomes as low as possible. That's something that we do by um, improving the options, improving the availability and the quality of all kinds of products. Yeah. For me personally, what you just said, that the goal is to make eating and being vegan as easy as not even thinking about it, not even perhaps being aware that you're vegan. That really describes what I'm trying to promote here as well. But I would imagine that for a lot of people, and especially a lot of vegans who are activists, that kind of means like a step in the wrong direction, because if people are not aware of the fact that they are vegan, wouldn't that make it easier for them to stop being vegan because they're not even aware of it? How does that integrate with, with the activist approach? Yes, it is, as you say, like many vegans would have a problem with what I'm just saying. Like they say, like, you can't go vegan for no reason. You know, you have to have a very good reason for, for being vegan. That's the animals, basically. That's the reason we want people to care about animals. So suppose we have a world in which everybody goes vegan without caring about the animals. That wouldn't be like so good because, um, I mean, first of all, we want people to care. And secondly, it may not be sustainable or permanent. But the thing that um, I always emphasize, and it's a thing that is forgotten in our movement and that is not used very widely in, in social movements in general, but that is recognized as, as a mainstream idea in psychology, is that it's not just that attitude can lead to behavior change. Behavior change can also lead to attitude change. So if we create this world, if we facilitate compassion, if we facilitate eating vegan, then what we expect to see is that many people will also start changing their attitudes. So the principle is that once they see that eating vegan is not that difficult, I mean, they're not eating entirely vegan yet, but they do it now and then, and they see it's not difficult, it's tasty, it's affordable, it's doable, then all of a sudden they realize, well, I don't have that much to lose anymore. I don't need to be defensive anymore. And they will be more open-minded to listen to all these vegan arguments, read these animal rights texts, watch uh, Earthlings. You know this, you've heard maybe, many people will have heard some people say like, uh, well, I don't want to watch Earthlings because I will need to be vegan afterwards. I mean, that basically says like they know what's going on, but they like meat and they don't want to change. So if you first show them that change is not that difficult, then the attitude change can follow much more easily. So the thing is, we don't need to lead with the animal rights argument. It can follow later. But the, the compassion for animals, the care for animals can follow after the behavior change, after the potlucks, and after all the products have been introduced, and after people have been vegan for health reasons or have been eating some vegan meals for health reasons. It doesn't have to be right away. And that, to many activists, is like something that is, is new because I think like people have to care about animals but they forget that the caring about animals can come later. And in, in many people's experience, and there's many vegans that I know, they started out for, for instance, health reasons. And then they discovered all these things about eating meat and about animal suffering. And now they're activists for animal rights reasons, but they started out because they had an allergy or because they had some kind of medical problem or because they wanted to lose weight. So that's how it goes. So basically, I don't see any problem in creating an environment that's facilitating veganism because I trust that from there, many people will much more easily grasp the animal rights reasons and, and will it will be much more easy for them to care. Yeah, I have to admit, while you were talking about this, I was just thinking about Melanie's Joy definition of carnism, 
as that ideology that is not even expressed anywhere. It's just all prevalent in, in the society, in the minds of people. And the way that I understand you is that veganism should ideally replace that to, to the point where, where it's so prevalent that people are not even aware of thinking that way, but because they are, because this is the way they think, because this is the way they eat and, and behave, it makes them much more open to all the other ideas, to embracing compassion, to advocating for animal rights and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, in a way you could say, I mean, Melanie defines carnism as an invisible belief system. And in a way you could say that the more we feed people vegan meals and the more they appreciate vegan food, the, this invisible belief system becomes visible. Um, and they can start seeing what's going on and they can and, and, and the, the veal is taken away and they can start caring. And well, now that you mentioned caring, up to this point, the way that you're talking about things it is very well thought out and very rational, but you and I both know that there's a very strong emotional component to, to the animal rights movement and to veganism in general. So I want to know how you experience all this and what are both your personal approach to it and your approach to it in, in your whole philosophy. I'm both a very rational and a very emotional person and I can cry and I can be teary-eyed as much as the next vegan about about horrible pictures of animal suffering and if I even think about it, I get very emotional. Uh, but at the same time, I attach a lot of importance to thinking rationally about things and thinking about think, thinking things through. Um, and, and I think emotion has its place and, and emotion is perfectly fine and we need a lot of emotion. We need a lot of caring and compassion, which are emotional things to like. But we also need to think about our activism and we need to think about the effect that we have with everything, with our words on paper, with our, our spoken words, to consider what it is like to be in the other person's shoes, to be in the shoes of the audience that we are speaking to. That is, um, that is something that in all our emotion and all our passion, we forget about. And there's a real danger in many ways to be like, Thought too much in both emotion and ideology. It is so easy to like focus on this animal suffering and to like, and I was like that too in a certain period of my life, and to just want to like scream and tell people, please stop doing that because it's so horrible and because it, it gets to you. But it is worth standing still for a moment right then and thinking like, okay, hold on, is my approach here which is very impulsive maybe and very emotional, is that the best approach to reach people? And if you ask the question again and again, what is it like right now to be the other person hearing me that will help already a lot in like um, looking at your message and, and where necessary adapting it. So that is, I think, the, the most fundamental advice I can give to animals. Step out of your own shoes and step into the other person's shoes. Uh, and one way of putting it is, you are not your audience. You are not the audience you want to reach. In sales, uh, since this is an entrepreneurial podcast, in sales, people <laughs> have known that for a long time. I mean, if you want to sell soap, you're not, not just going to sell the soap that you like. You're going to look at whether there's a market for it, whether people like it. So in the same sense, we are selling something. We are selling a product and a product is a message and is an ideology and is an attitude in a way. And we have to sell it 
to people and we have to make sure that we sell it in a package or in a form that is acceptable to them. And that's all, yeah, that's all part of rationality for me to, to see how we can bring our message to people in a way that it resonates with them and not just bring our message in a way that, well, gives us some satisfaction because we have boldly spoken our truth or something. I agree with that like 110% because for me, it is very much about marketing no matter what the message is no matter if the end result is a sale or if the end result is convincing someone or talking them into seeing your point and i think this is a very very important distinction to be kept in mind between just putting your message out there for the sake of putting it out there because i know that and this is especially true for for a lot of new vegans that when you start realizing these things you are so upset that you just want to go out and and scream about it but more often than not that just leads to this vicious cycle when you're screaming your message it's with people and sometimes not so much because of the message but because of the way it is presented people won't react to it or they'll react in a way that just makes you more frustrated about the whole process and then it cycles back. So yes, I very much agree with it. In a lot of cases, when we are emotional and especially when we are angry, people will experience that this anger is directed to them. Yeah. And they will feel that you are making them guilty or accusing them of something, etc. And these are like guilt and feeling accused. Those things are, are very alienating. They will not bring anybody closer to you in most cases. Sometimes that may help and, and, and probably we think it helps more than it does because most of us who are vegan right now are more prone to feeling, that's my hypothesis, we are more prone to feeling guilty than, than the next person. But that doesn't mean that this guilt feeling uh, will help for, for, for other people. So I think we should be very angry with anger, especially. And the way I see it with a non-vegan expression is, is that we have to walk on Actions. We have to like go the extra mile to put other people at ease because they're already feeling guilty by themselves about what they're doing. Many of them, they know that what they're doing is, is not optimal. So they're already feeling guilty. And so if we can be the person that like puts them at ease and if we show them that we are a person that they can talk to without them feeling even more guilty, but they can talk to about their feelings, I think that will be very beneficial to conversation and very beneficial to change. That's very universal. I mean, the, the sense of guilt when, when you feel that and then someone speaks to you in a way that just makes you feel more guilty or they make it clear that you are in a way insufficient or unable to, to go past that guilt and change your behavior and that makes you bad, then you're not very likely to react favorably to, to their message or, or to that person even. Exactly. Still, vegan activism is, in a lot of ways, it's angry and sometimes it's very radical in its methods. And often those methods are effective to a point. So um, do you think there are people or audiences that do react more favorably to, to this form of activism as opposed to, to the more pragmatic approach that, that you're advocating? I'm certainly not going to say that there's only one approach, but uh, with any approach, we don't have to look at just the people who we 
attracted to our message like it's like suppose i'm i'm going to like go on the market and then i'm going to like say hey everybody meet this murder listen up um and there's blood on your hands or whatever and then somebody comes to me and he says like you're right i'm going vegan and then we might say like yes see this works but then we forget about maybe 20 30 people who were more alienated than ever before from us and our message so we have to make like we have to look at the net result uh, the people who we attract versus the people who we turn off and when we're broadcasting especially when we're reaching a lot of people then um, often we don't know who we are reaching what the effect is on them and then i would say like it's better to be careful rather than to be um, confrontational in a one-to-one confrontation or, or interaction where we know what kind of people what kind of person we have in front of us then it is more easily more easy to judge like well maybe in this case a more confrontational approach a more straight uh, approach might work uh, but when you're broadcasting it's something different and i then i choose to be to be rather careful personally i also think that um we have to very much take into account the time um, in our movement, the, the the time of the, in the history of our movement, so the phase we are in as a movement, and this is a phase where 98% of the people consumes animal products, 98% or more, uh, celebrates consuming animal products. So the public support for a confrontational message is not going to be very high. The public support for a message anti-whaling, for instance, if you look at Sea Shepherd, they're a pretty confrontational organization and they get away with it. They have a lot of public support from celebrities, from the public, from the whole public, etc. But why is that? It's because people are not eating whales. They're not involved in that. They can very easily support Sea Shepherd's efforts against whaling because they're, they don't have a, a dog in that fight, so to speak. So where you have a lot of public support, it becomes more easy and more productive to be confrontational at this point around meat Animal products, food, I would not be too confrontational. I believe these tactics will work much better in 10 or 20 years when we have a much bigger public support for veganism and we have a much more easy situation. Yes, and that, that brings us to what I mentioned in, in the intro, the bottom line. As you said, if activism reaches one person and pushes away 20, then your bottom line could be improved. So... In, in that light, you know, where does business fit into all of this? I think, um, well, the way I see it, up to, let's say, 10 years ago, the animal rights people were kind of the only people working for the animals. But 10 years ago, there was also all of a sudden, there was like the health and the environmental movement, which also talked about eating less meat and which contributed to less animals being eaten uh, or will contribute to less animals being eaten. And then thirdly, since just the last couple of years, especially, I see business as a third or a fourth driver for change for animals. Maybe not always intentionally for animals, sometimes also for sustainability, but it's become an incredible force for moving people and moving society on the vegan spectrum. And it's creating resources that we've never seen before. I did a quick calculation once to look at the venture capital that um, like five Silicon Valley companies, um, the, the Hampton Creeks, etc., collected or, or raised together. In the last four years, it was about $400 million, which is probably several times more than the budget of the whole animal rights movement uh, worldwide combined. That's really money that was never there before. So on a, on a systemic big scale, you can see that this could really do something. And sometimes I even wonder, like, 
at this point, is it business or will it be advocacy and activists that will be the main, will play the main role? And I'm not so sure anymore which one it is. I used to think like vegan advocacy, the vegan animal rights movement is so important, but relatively it's getting less important because business is becoming so important here. So yeah, especially if we don't want to make ourselves redundant as a movement, we have to be, I think we have to be on the game, on the ball. We have to be very pragmatic and play along and not look at those details all the time because then that's the best way to make ourselves redundant, I think. So systemically, uh, business is very important. But also, yeah, business is a form of, or can be a form of, of activism. And it can be a form of activism that is actually more sustainable than uh, being a volunteer in some organization or being like an outreach on the street. Can be more sustainable because you get an income from it. And there's no shame in getting an income from doing what you love and doing something that has an impact. So um, I really like it when people are able to make a living out of doing something good. And the strange thing is that within social movements, uh, within movements to make the world a better place, this is often frowned upon. And, and you can you can make a lot of money by selling soap and nobody cares. But if you make some money, and not even a lot of money, but just make a living by doing something good, then a lot of people will complain and they will tell you like, oh, you shouldn't make money off the back of the animals, etc., etc. This is a nonsensical argument. When you are able to work for the animals full time thanks to that thanks to the fact that you have an income then you have gained for the animals then you have actually made uh, made it possible for yourself to do activism 24/7 or let's say 40 or 50 hours a week and not just on the sidelines after hours which is more impactful and more sustainable yeah well my opinion on on the topic that you brought out whether activism and advocacy or, or business will play a larger role. Actually, myself, I'm, I'm leaning more towards business simply because of the budget that, that you mentioned. And that budget is, yeah, in, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And I believe that no matter how passionate you are about a certain issue, if you do not have the financial drive behind it or you know a large enough backing in terms of supporters and followers then um, you can't really be as successful as as an establishment that's actually being driven by investors from all over the world and by expanding into markets that are worth hundreds of billions really Yeah, I mean, if you look at big companies, the, just the fact that they have like a big marketing budget, just that, I mean, I'm not even speaking about R&D or, or other things or distribution, but just a marketing budget. If a company has a marketing budget of a few million dollars, that's a budget that is actually invested in advertising vegan products and getting vegan products more into the mainstream and normalizing them. And that is money that no animal rights organization has. So the importance of that cannot be underestimated. And I mean, a lot of the times I, I, um, I devote uh, in my book, I devote a, a chapter on, on how the vegan movement should uh, relate to business. Um, a lot of times that is, like I said, it's frowned upon to like make money and, and it's capitalistic commercial. It's all kinds of things. Well, I wish that money weren't so important in our world today. And I hope that will change. And I think that will change someday when we're more enlightened, etc. But right now, when we have a big problem with, with animals and with all kinds of things, if profit is a driver for change for the good, then we have to use that driver and we don't have to uh, condemn it. And uh, I think these, these, um, these companies 
like Hampton Creek, etc., getting so much um, venture capital money. There's some of the best things that capitalism can bring, no matter what what you think of capitalism. Um, I applaud these, these these companies, and I applaud the fact that like they're. I mean, I say all the power to them, and the money they can get to spread the message. Well, the more the better, because that will get us to the tipping point much faster. Well, I'm going to pose a slightly more difficult question now and ask you what what's your opinion on other companies that are definitely not vegan or could not be considered vegan by their mission or by the products that they sell, but they are still getting into this space. Like, for instance, Tyson, which is the largest meat producer and processor in the world, now has a venture fund that's investing in vegan companies, not exclusively vegan, but new emerging food trends. And so do, so does Kellogg's, for, for instance, or General Mills. So um, what's your take on that? Because the bottom line is they are promoting veganism, but the drive there is definitely less pure than some other businesses. Yeah, the, the drive is definitely to make profit. And I would rather see um, an idealistic company and a company that's very, that has integrity and where the people have integrity to get money from these things. And I sympathize also with the idea that like, I mean, Tyson is one of the, the biggest, let's say, chicken killers in the world. And now all of a sudden they're going to like profit from the vegan trend also. I mean, that seems like very unfair in a way, but we have to just accept that change is going to be very slow and I think the new system is going to be built with money from the old system it's going to be based on the old system that's there's no other way around that almost in general uh, or more concretely rather what I think of like Tyson buying into um, Beyond Meat for instance well first of all like I said they have a big marketing budget they have all their resources that they have that they can put in the service of vegan products I mean a company like Tyson as far as I know I think would be agnostic as to the resources that they use, whether they're plant resources or animal resources. If they can make money, that's fine. So I think whatever they do in that sense, it will be fine with them. So I think that that we should allow them, and it's not that we have any other choice, but we should allow them to um, use all their money, all their resources to advertise vegan products, and they can do it better than small companies on a wider scale than small companies. Secondly, um, I think the only way that the antagonism of the meat lobby against the vegan movement, trying to sabotage it, is going to stop is when these meat companies have a stake in vegan products. I mean, can you imagine, like for instance, in Europe, we have the problem that soy milk cannot be called soy milk. It has to be called soy drink. That was uh, an effort by the dairy industry. Now, I'm pretty sure that if all the dairy companies also had had a significant stake in soy milk, they wouldn't have made that move. So the more people, the more companies we can involve in this thing, the less antagonism, the less sabotage, the less counter lobbying there will be. So I think that's that's another um, advantage of this. Yeah. In, in terms of the consumers, if we look at how these companies and we're talking about any company that has a vegan offering right now, how they attract their buyers, what strategies would you advise for not just bringing in vegan customers, but for bringing in customers who aren't vegan to try and maybe incorporate those products into their life? 
just uh, for my clarification, are you talking about like vegan businesses or like non-vegan businesses uh, that we try to convince? Well, um, I think the, the focus should be on vegan businesses because I think yeah. that non-vegan businesses and larger brands, like like you said, they they have a better understanding of how to yeah. reach their audiences. But if it's a vegan business and especially if the founders or the people leading it yeah. believe that their audience should be vegan, then I think that can be a very large stumbling block on, on expanding their reach. So what, what can they do to reach those people who aren't necessarily plant-based? Right. So when we're talking about vegan businesses or people wanting to start up a vegan business, um, I would be careful with too much idealism in your message. And um, you could be entirely behind plant-based and behind vegan, but that doesn't mean that you have to market your products as such. And you have to be careful with that because most of the public is not on board yet. And, and here again, it's a matter of knowing your audience, knowing the values of your audience and tagging your products and your services onto those values of your audience rather than forcing your values on them. So it, you shouldn't say like, uh, well, I care about the animals. I do it for the animals and should, so should my customers. It doesn't matter why your customers do it or why your customers buy your products. They help you with your business and by buying their products, uh, they may change their attitude about animals anyway, if you do it well. So watch out with too much ideology, too much idealism. Think from the uh, standpoint of your audience. You are not your audience. That's very important uh, to remember. And um, if it means that uh, you have to emphasize health more than animals, then um, I think so be it. If that helps you be a more successful business, that will be good for the animals too, probably in most cases. How do you see the difference between advertising as vegan or plant-based or using the term vegan versus plant-based or even, you know, going for the flexitarians and the reducitarians? I'm not entirely in the know about the research, but I, I know there is research about this. I know that's why, um, I mean, that, that the vegan term is less popular than vegetarian and vegetarian is less popular than um, than meat-free or plant-based. So that's why a lot of companies shun the word uh, vegan and sometimes also vegetarian and use other words. In the end, we'll have to get the word vegan out there in the mainstream, but it doesn't mean that we have to like always use that word right now from now on. I mean, we can use it here and there and people get used to it slowly but surely. And as uh, veganism becomes easier and becomes trendier, then uh, we'll be able to use the word more and more consistently. Usually, uh, the word vegan is less problematic when you use it as an adjective than as a noun. So if you talk about a vegan product or a vegan meal, that's way less problematic than to talk about vegans. Because veganism and vegans, that's a black and white thing. That's a binary thing. You are it, you follow it, or you don't. Um, and that's for many people, that's not attractive. If they don't want to be a vegan, then they won't feel attracted. But everybody can eat a plant-based or a vegan meal. And we have to like stay away from, from the binary use of these terms. So that was talking about businesses bringing in customers. And if we flip it around, what's the strategy? What's the approach that, for instance, vegan activists should use when they're trying to bring businesses that aren't necessarily vegan to see our point of view? Well, um, here again, it's the same thing. Know your audience and speak the language of your audience and um, don't try to force your values on them. A newly minted vegan may think like, okay, I'm going to ask this restaurant to change or this, this business to change and to, to do something in their 
to, to ex expand their vegan offer and they will approach them with the animal rights argument because that's the most important to them. But that's not the argument that's going to convince them. You have to talk about profits. You have to talk about convenience. You have to talk about other things. And also, it's important to realize that these companies shouldn't talk about, about vegans, about attracting vegans. It Basically, when they launch a vegan product or when they have a vegan service, these products or services are attractive for everybody that is attracted to them. That means not just vegans, but like in the case of food products, everybody who likes that food product. That is the audience for those products or for those dishes or for those services. So not just the vegans. We have to avoid uh, talking about the vegans, I think, as an audience or as the audience because they're still way too small. They're not, um, they don't create a viable, a viable audience, a viable clientele for, uh, for those businesses. So emphasize the fact that um, there's many people who um, might be attracted to these vegan dishes, these vegan products, and might be attracted especially if you don't call them vegan products or vegan dishes, if you don't call them, if you don't show that these products are for vegans, but rather for everybody who may like them. In light of that, like where, where do you see the biggest business potential in, in veganism? If we know that it's not just vegans who are the target audience, or it shouldn't be vegans who are the target audience, what, what segment of the market does, in your opinion, hold the, the biggest potential in either in terms of financial return or in terms of most impact or, you know, as a combination of both? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not that knowledgeable about or insightful about the whole um, business opportunity thing, etc. But uh, what I like is, for instance, what Hampton Creek does. So Hampton Creek is, is making cookies and, and mayonnaise without milk. So what happens there is that they just replace a certain product with their product. People don't necessarily realize that. They don't know that. But if you can do that with millions of eggs or thousands of jars of main or liters of mayonnaise, which Hampton Creek is doing because uh, they have approached um, 7-Eleven and they have approached Compass Group and both these uh, organizations, I believe, are only using or exclusively using uh, the Hampton Creek egg-free mayonnaise. So I think that's big in terms of volume and that's, at its hands is big also in terms of impact. Even if people don't realize that they're eating egg-free mayonnaise, sooner or later, it will be clear that in less and less products, there are animal products. And, um, and more and more of the products that they're consuming here and there in catering and everywhere are vegan. And that will, I think, again, make it easier for them to draw the conclusion like, well, veganism is not that difficult and I can go further and further in that. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, I think um, imitating products and just replacing them um, uh, just placing, replacing the normal products with the vegan ones. And I think also on top of that, in catering, in volume cooking, cooking in, in, in hospitals and schools and all kinds of things, there's a lot to be done there. Also, maybe in terms of like making these alternatives cheap enough so that they are affordable for, um, for volume cooking um, for the out-of-home kitchen where people don't always want to pay much and where the budget for the chef is, uh, and for the procurers is, is often quite low. You know, for someone who claims not to be very knowledgeable about the aspect of vegan business, I think you gave a very good answer because I believe that <laughs> the mass production of food and yeah, institutions like schools or hospitals or just cafeterias on university campuses are a potential huge clients and 
be the potential for change there is just enormous because as is the case of Hampton Creek, which if I'm right, um, I think they're actually rebranding right now. They're not, um, they're going from Hampton Creek to, I think, Just. They're calling, right, yeah. calling themselves Just. But anyway, like you said, if you replace the mayo that 7-Eleven uses or the Compass Group uses with eggless mayo, that's, that's not something that's going to be very visible outright. I mean, there's not going to be Facebook memes done about it, but it's going to have a huge impact anyway. Definitely. That's something that if anyone is considering path in vegan food production, then wholesale is, is one area where um, we still have a long way to go and a lot of goals that are probably within easy reach. You know, they're, they're definitely achievable, like some companies are already demonstrating. Yeah, I think, like I said, price is an issue there often. And a lot of the products, the vegan products are often more expensive than the, the meaty ones. For people who can develop like alternatives that are not too expensive and that are sustainable and healthy, which are two arguments that are important for institutional uh, or for institutions like businesses and hospitals, etc., that could be very successful. Yeah, and... Basically, it's all leading up to to establishing this, and here I'm borrowing a term of your own, this vegan critical mass. Since, since this is something that you use a lot, um, what, what's your definition of it? The way I see it, we are still both individually and um, as a society or as a movement, uh, we, are, we, are, we are very much swimming against the stream. We are like rowing against the stream. We're going upward we're climbing a mountain and at some point i think i i'm expecting there to be well a quickening where at, at some point well this is a critical the critical mass point or the tipping point where um things will turn and will will move much faster many people think that this is um a certain amount of vegans i think there's no need necessarily to i mean it's important to increase the amount of vegans but that shouldn't be our only focus i think and i don't know about the numbers but the exact numbers but i think if x percent of the people is x percent vegan then at some point uh, the system will tip and of course this is very vague because i don't know what the x is but the point is that we have to have the critical number of reducers reduces to a certain degree they are, are already changing demand and and supply but they are the most important in, in, in shaping the system and in tipping it. Uh, because uh, if there's enough demand, then I think we will see much bigger, much better supply, much more quality, much more availability. We will also uh, get it cheaper. We will um, have a change maybe in taxes and premiums and subsidies. So the whole system might change. There will be more acceptability everywhere. And um, at some point, I think uh, what we will see first is that vegan in more and more places becomes a default option. So default option is what you get when you don't see anything. Like when you get on a plane, the default option is that you get a meat meal. I'm waiting for the first airline company that says, we are going to make the default option a vegan meal. People who want to have meat, they have to ask it beforehand. They have to register on the website and, and, and ask. So that's a very simple thing and a very effective, impactful thing to do, I think, and uh, and I think we'll see more and more of that. And then after that, there will come a phase where, where vegan will become the new normal. And I think when we are at, at a phase where that happens, then there's no stopping it anymore because at that point, it will be so much more difficult to continue um, doing something that is morally wrong and that more people, more and more people will understand that's more, that it's more and more wrong. 
you can imagine like um suppose all of a sudden we had well not all of a sudden but in a couple, a couple of years we have clean meat and it's just as tasty and it's healthier and it's better and it's cruelty free etc you'd have to basically be uh, almost a psychopath to continue to exist on eating uh, the dead bodies of animals so the more alternatives you have the more easily you can make the point that uh, eating animal products is is immoral the only potential downside i see to that is that when you make vegan meals standard on the plane it's going to take longer to get them because you know that right now when you're flying and, and you order the vegan meal that you're you're usually the first one who gets served <laughs> so yeah that's true but you know yeah. i'm 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 willing to accept that yeah <laughs> anyway um what what i really wanted to ask you as well is you you brought it up a little earlier the book that you are writing it it's not out yet right no it will be out uh, i think around mid july okay so that means about a month from from when this interview airs and um w would you mind sharing a bit more about it because the, the way i understand it it is exactly about the topics that we've been covering in this interview so far so how do we get to to this vegan critical mass and what are all the different paths that that leads to it yeah so the book is called uh, how to create a vegan world a pragmatic approach And it's one of the few books that um, that is written especially for the movement. So it's a niche book. It's not something that everybody will, uh, will want to read outside of the movement. But it's one of those few books that, that addresses strategy and addresses the question, how are we going to get there? And uh, we've, we've talked about some things. I basically suggest a very pragmatic approach because uh, right now we are way too dependent on using animal products. Society and individuals are dependent on it uh, for just a moral uh, go vegan for the animal's message to, um, to make much of an inroad in, in changing things. So what I suggest is both in our in our call for action, we uh, not just um, ask for people to go vegan, but we also have a reducitarian ask. And in our in the arguments that we use, we we, um, we don't always talk about the animals, but we are able to de what I call demoralize the uh, the message and talk about health and environment and uh, and taste and uh, all kinds of things. So it doesn't have to be about the animals. The, the, the concern for animals, like I said, can come later. Uh, thirdly, the third way to be pragmatic is um, to create or to help create facilitating environment. So creating a facilitating environment, uh, abbreviated to CAFE, is um, is a way to make things easier for people and to make sure that their, their behavior changes so that their attitudes can change. And then fourthly, and maybe most controversially, I suggest also that we apply a more um, slightly... Uh, less strict concept of, of what is vegan and what is not vegan. And uh, I think if we see veganism as a 90% thing rather than a 100% thing, we would be so much more attractive and we could recruit so many more people than if we are like uh, so uberly strict about it. Personally, I, I agree with you there, but um, I can see how that would be a very controversial point. But um, what what is, for instance, 100% vegan? What is 90% vegan because when you break it down you know are are you vegan if if you don't eat anything that comes from animals and don't use animal products but you still have like an old pair of leather shoes that you bought 15 years ago how many percent are we talking there 
Yeah, I would call that 99.9%, but of course it's subjective. But let's go a little more down that road or down that spectrum. Let's say somebody um, is vegan except for three times a year. She goes to her grandmother who is dying or who will be dead soon, and she makes this cake that she's very proud of. And this woman says, uh, well, I can't refuse my grandmother this cake, and I, I just do it because she loves me. She loves seeing me eat it, etc." And she's too old to change and to use uh, an egg replacer or whatever. Let's say somebody just thinks that and believes that. I mean, calling that person a non-vegan because she makes those three exceptions a year would be very alienated. It would serve nothing. It, it would only lead that person to be to feel alienated from the vegan movement, and that is not productive at all. So that will be an example of a 99% vegan maybe maybe we can go lower um what i what i think is that being 100 percent consistent is often not not productive and um my concern is always like it's not with the definition of veganism is not with being a pure vegan but is with having an impact on animal suffering so in certain cases i will make like those tiny exceptions and i cannot make big exceptions because i'm disgusted really easily but let's say if there's like um well, yeah, first of all, like, like, like bread, for instance, I will never inquire about that. Some vegans do that. I don't, I don't inquire about what's in the bread when, I, when I'm eating it out of, the, out of the home. But there can be other things like, like an example I, I often give is like, suppose you are eating a lasagna at another person's place. He's a non-vegan and he's gone out of his way to make it for the first time a vegan lasagna for you. And then you discover, well, the pasta sheets, the dough, the pasta dough contains eggs and he didn't know what do you do that moment do you sit down and eat or do you say like i'm sorry i can't eat this and uh, my opinion is that no matter how friendly you are it's going to be very very challenging very very difficult to avoid that this person is more alienated from vegans and veganism than before so the the, the lesser of two evils is just to eat that it's actually not damaging for the animals at all. And, and you may afterwards explain, like, look, uh, this wasn't really vegan, but I ate it anyway because I, I appreciate it. Uh, and I know there's people who think they can explain this very nicely why they wouldn't eat it. And maybe they can, and maybe it has a good impact. I'm just very critical that it is often possible. And um, I would just rather be sure. And, um, and, and in that case, I would uh, prioritize my impact and the image, and I want to show to people that it's so it's not pandering to their concerns or anything. It's mainly showing people that veganism is not too difficult. If I refuse that, if I show, if I refuse a meal, and if I show that as a vegan you get into the socially awkward situations, then this person will be further away than ever before. Yeah, and and that brings us again to to the bottom line that we've been talking about the the entire interview actually, and that is if you can create if if you can convert and nurture 180% vegans that's a lot bigger achievement than converting 10 100% vegans and and i think like i said uh, i mean if you have a society if, if you can create a society of of all of maybe 80% 80% vegans let's say uh, then there's no way where it would stop there we have to get people to take the first, the most important steps first. And, and we have to look at the details, the last 5% or something. We have to only look at that later. That will will solve itself. The, the most important thing is to make people cross the threshold. And we shouldn't be concerned about like watering down veganism or confusing people about veganism. I mean, that's not a luxury that we have. We have a world in which 99% of other people are not vegan. So let's not uh, bother about the details too much at this point. But let's look at the places where we can have a big impact, the places that are really important. 
in, in terms of the results, if we look 10 or 20 or 30 years down the line, what's the brightest, best case scenario future that, that you can imagine? Well, if it has to be 20, 30 years down the line, I would say um, that will be a world in which uh, veganism is, is much more normative. And uh, I think further down the line, we have, we will have a vegan world. And then still further down the line, if we get very philosophical about it, I, um, I can imagine a world without suffering, a world where we say, do you remember in the past that people and animals were able to suffer? And um, I think that, I mean, people think that this is very unrealistic, but I'm always thinking like, well, what if we are still around in the year 3000, in the year 5000, etc. So many things will change. So many progress will be made in all kinds of ways. And it will be a world. It will possibly be a world, if we're optimistic, that um, that is unrecognizable to us today. And that and where a lot of the suffering um, or, or maybe all of the suffering it cannot be seen anymore. I'm very hopeful in that respect. I think that if we continue to exist as a species, and, and this is also a reason why I wouldn't, I would never press the button to extinguish ourselves. I think if we continue to exist, we will advance morally, technologically, etc., and we'll be able to like rule out and eliminate a lot of um, horrible stuff that is happening today. Not just because we are, um, because of our culture, but also because of uh, our biology. Beautiful. <laughs> It's a very great combination of realistic idealism, which I think plays very well with, with the pragmatic approach that, that you're advocating. So th thank you for that, Tobias. And um, right now, just to close this off, where can people find out more about you, hear your lectures, read what you're putting out on your blog, and um, of course, find out about your book when, when it comes out? Yeah, so um, best way to follow me is uh, either veganstrategist.org and you can subscribe there. And I also have a, a Facebook uh, page called Vegan Strategist. Uh, so uh, those are two ways to uh, to follow me. Okay. And have you got any speaking engagements in, in the future? Because I know that right now you, you just came back from, from New York, right? Yes, I came back from the Reducetarian Conference and I've already... Uh, uh, done another training actually coincidentally in my own city the next uh, training will be um i think well i'll be speaking in uh, in stockholm at a festival in a couple of weeks and then we will have a training in uh, berlin and then one in uh, in riga in latvia um and um well those those trainings if people are interested in these trainings they can find an agenda or a calendar on uh, veganadvocacy.org which is the um website of SIVA, the Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy, that I gave the trainings at together with Melanie. Perfect. Well, Tobias, thank you very much for, for joining me today and for sharing your views. I think that they tie very well in, in the main topic of the plant-based entrepreneur show, which of course is business. But I think that the, the pragmatic approach that you are practicing is what should be at the core of, of vegan business as well. So um, thank you very much for taking the time to talk about it. My pleasure. Have an awesome day. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that was Tobias Lehnert, the vegan strategist, joining me in episode 32 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. And, you know, even though we didn't specifically talk about business all the time, I think most of the topics that we covered can be applied more or less directly to any entrepreneurial undertaking in the vegan space, no matter if it's big or small. 
Now, as always, if there's anything that you missed regarding this interview, we take all the show notes for you and you can find them at theplanbasedentrepreneur.com forward slash show forward slash episode 032. And of course, if you haven't sent in your questions for the guests at the Online Vegan Business Summit yet, make sure you don't miss the chance and do this before registration for the event opens. So that's veganbusinesssummit.com and you'll find the survey to submit everything you want to know right on the homepage there. And another thing regarding this event, if you'd like to join our team and help us out, we're still looking for one to two interns. So these are online part-time positions. And if you're passionate about plant-based business and you're skilled at web design, graphics, or copywriting, I would love to hear from you. So just reach out to me on jerry at theplantbasedentrepreneur.com and let's talk. That'll be all for today. I will see you again next week with another interview. Until then, stay awesome and remember, the future is plant-based.